Workers of the world, unite. I don't know for sure, but this could be the only financial services podcast that kicks off by quoting Karl Marx. And that translation was taken from his work, The Communist Manifesto, written way back in 1848. But you've got to hand it to Karl. It's pretty catchy, and it's pretty sticky. And like any good meme, it went viral. Workers across the world used these words as a call to arms and started organizing within formal union structures. And in some places, unions were pivotal in fighting for workers' rights, to protect them from conditions that Upton Sinclair exposed in his book The Jungle. And once they hit some kind of critical mass, unions could start to push for higher wages, better working conditions, and benefits like health care, pension, and time off. On the flip side, though, the power of a big union can be totally misdirected leading to unaffordable labor costs, obstacles in adapting a business to a changing market, and, if you're actually a fan of Twinkies, bad news. But that hasn't stopped workers at one of the world's edgiest companies from trying to unionize. These workers actually think that the best way to take on a shiny tech firm is to use the same approach that workers did hundreds of years before them. So, is it? Welcome to ESG Now. I'm your non-unionized host, Bentley Kaplan. Your normal host, Matt Biscardi, stepped out the room for a few minutes, so I stuck in to record some stuff. On today's show, we're going to roll up our sleeves and, in honor of International Workers' Day, tackle the tricky topic of labor unions. What they were, what they could be, or maybe what they'll never be. Through this episode, we are going to see that the topic of labor unions raises fundamental questions about the company-worker relationship especially as the gig economy starts to take off. So, strap yourself in. Whether you're a worker bee in this brave new economy, whether you're a manager at a tech firm nervous about gangs of nerds, or whether you're an investor taking a look at companies of the future, this should have a little something for everyone. Even Matt, who hasn't come back yet. Although they've taken up some decent historical bandwidth, unions aren't exactly a hot topic anymore. They're not trending like Game of Thrones or Cronuts or, and my apologies for this reference, the Kardashians. In fact, unions are on a bit of a downward trend. In the 1950s, about one in three US workers was unionized. All right, now in 1985, it's already down to one in five. Today, it's down to about one in 10 and falling. Whoa, 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 wait. Sorry to disrupt your hostile takeover of my podcast, Bentley, but I'm back for a second. And I want to give you a quick personal take on the decline of unions in the U.S. My grandfather worked for General Motors for like 40 years, and he was in the union. So he saw the ebb and the flow of the union pretty closely, like going from getting paid holidays and pensions and health insurance and all sorts of retirement perks to giving up concessions after the recessions in the 70s and 80s and foreign competition. But he retired early enough that he actually got to keep a lot of the perks, my favorite of which was that they used to offer him new cars like every five years for next to nothing. And when I was 16, he was offering me his used cars, which 
sounds cool until you realize that being 16 years old in the 1990s, driving your grandfather's hand-me-down Buick wasn't exactly what you had in mind as an escape from your oppressive parents. But I I digress. So Bentley, please carry on hijacking the podcast. He needs no introduction. But that's Matt Muscardi, the colorful fountainhead of the ESG Now podcast. And I just knew he wouldn't be able to resist chiming in somewhere along this episode. And, and if you tune out the part about Matt's woe is me, teenage angst, life sucks because I got free cars, his story about his grandpappy actually tells us something useful. And that's basically unions that have enough muscle can really make a worker's life better, and in a number of ways. But that doesn't come for free. And it's this extra budget line, think of it as like a union premium, that can make some investors a little grumpy. And that's because there's an opportunity cost, right? I mean, if you're putting a lot of the company's cash into these plush employee benefits, like subsidies for cars, it also means you're not putting them somewhere else, like, say, research and development, or acquisitions, or dividends. And if you're an investor, maybe you're the kind of investor that's keeping a close eye on where a company is putting its capital. And if you're not, maybe you should be. Hostess Brands, the US company that makes Twinkies, something loosely classified as food and generously called cake, found itself staring down unionized workers as it battled against falling sales and rising debt. The failure of the company to develop new or healthy products and its labor costs were starting to take their toll. In 2012, things got really, really bad. And to stay in business, Hostess turned to its workforce cap in hand, asking employees to take a pay cut to keep its factories open. But the union representing its bakers, about 30% of its workforce, just wouldn't budge. And by the end of 2012, Hostess filed for bankruptcy, ultimately laying off most of its 18,000 employees. And the postscript gets even more brutal. Hostess was ultimately acquired by a private equity firm that brought in automation, opting for 1,300 workers instead of 18,000, and slashing union representation down to 5%. And although these drastic steps help keep hostess running, I think something like a million Twinkies are made every day, you could probably argue that the company never quite recovered to its glory days pre-bankruptcy. So then if unions are such bad news, someone needs to tell the South Koreans, because some of them would disagree. Um, the Congress of Korea is now discussing um, um, or having conversation with labor, labor and um, business management um, side of um, people um, on the uh, ratification of ILO conventions um, that are triggered by um, the request by European Union. And um, despite South Korea signing um, UN ILO in 1991, Um, We have not yet uh, ratified four of the eight core conventions, including freedom of association. That's SK Kim, one of our brilliant analysts based in Seoul, South Korea. South Korea, of course, being the home market of Samsung. And it makes sense that Samsung is doing so well there. Along with SK, there are a lot of bright, motivated people. And the company is reaping the benefits of their talent without having to deal with the complexity of unions. At least for now. See, what SK is saying is that way back in 1991, South Korea signed up as a member state of the UN's International Labour Organization, 
It's a global body that basically sets labor standards around the world to ensure that workers' rights are protected. And that sounds good, in theory, but there are some asterisks attached to that. See, the ILO actually has eight fundamental conventions, which is kind of like the Ten Commandments of Employers. But South Korea has only ratified four of these eight conventions to date, and one of the ones it hasn't is the right to freedom of association, which is lawyer speak for any worker is free to join a union and bargain for their rights. See, employees at Samsung Electronics are just itching to unionize. Samsung, of course, being one of the world's leading tech firms and South Korea's most profitable company. And not only is the company making cash, it's pushing the boundary on what's possible. This is a company that's lining up to release a bendable smartphone. Okay, now just think about that for a second. I had to get my mind around that. A bendable smartphone. But even though the company is at the forefront of tech progress, its workers are looking backwards, looking at history for inspiration. Samsung's employees are basically taking a look at what workers did in Britain in the 17th century when they joined forces to fight for better pay and working conditions and thinking, yeah, that's what we need to do. Which is kind of crazy. 17th century Britain is the time when street lamps were first used, when the grandfather clock became a thing, and when you would get your hair cut and leg amputated by the same person in the same place. So why would Samsung's employees, 300 years later, follow the lead of those British workers? And why would they even bother trying when Samsung's founder said his company would recognize trade unions, quote, over his dead body? When, when Samsung says, you know, like our, our relationship with employees are good, but then on the other hand, they, they have been sabotaging labor unions, then it is going to have a serious impact on the integrity or the credibility of the company um, that will eventually affect um, employee morale and, you know, the, the trustworthiness, whether um, they want to stay in this company for a long time. So that will eventually affect long-term resilience of um, financial performance in, um, for, for Samsung. And that's a critical point. As SK tells it, if Samsung wants to keep benefiting from its talented employees, you know, the driving force behind the profits, it's probably a good idea to improve employee relations. And maybe that even means opening its doors to the once-hated labor unions. But let's change tack here. What if you're an investor? How do you make sense of unions? And if you're investing for the future, isn't the question of unions actually a bit of a moot one? I mean, aren't unions in this general global decline, pretty much? And doesn't that make Samsung and South Korea a bit of an outlier? Well, let me put it to you this way. Unions are important, make no mistake. But unions are just a small piece of a big puzzle. And that big puzzle, the one investors like you should be trying to solve all revolves around one misleadingly simple question. Just what does the future of the company-worker relationship look like? You know, I think it, it, it comes down to you know, the, this, tech, this tech model, um, this business model that is, that is, so, that is so pervasive nowadays, um, that the, the growth model I'm talking about being growth at all costs. And, and one of those costs is the workers, uh, you know, in this case, not employees, the, the contract workers. Um, and it, I get, it really sort of, it seems to me to sort of exacerbate inequality in a community. That worried guy there, that's Andrew Young, out of our London office. 
He's no stranger to the podcast, and Andrew is an unusual animal, an ESG expert and a chartered accountant. That combo makes him a very level-headed dude. So if Andrew is worried, I am too. So, yeah, I guess regulators, it seems, you know, they're hesitant to to react um, to these uh, temporary uh, contract arrangements because it does, you know, it does provide some kind of employment um, to, especially to, to youth, to youth. And what he's getting at there is that right now, if you're a worker at a tech company, one of these new gig economy projects, regulators haven't got your back yet. The way the gig economy is changing so quickly makes it hard for them to keep up. And the companies they're trying to regulate are huge and scary. Just think of gangs of well-paid lawyers clopping around in their cloppy shoes, firing mountains of paperwork at anyone in their way, and you get the general idea. And if regulators are on the back foot and unions aren't even in the picture, because let's face it, these companies are just using contractors, the future doesn't look great for workers. Upton Sinclair's words of people having to work at a pitch of frenzy come echoing back through time. But then, just when hope starts to fade, some billionaires start running their mouths just a little too much, poke the bear just a little too hard, and the billionaires I'm talking about, well, they're both Chinese. Jack Ma, founder of Alibaba, worth about $40 billion. And Richard Liu, founder of JD.com, worth less at about $8 billion, but still, you know, nothing to sniff at. Just have a listen to Matt, Naomi English, who's one of our lead ESG product developers, and me, talk about it now ESG Weekly from April. So Jack Ma, in a speech, actually talked about the quote, blessing of 996, which is the privilege employees have to work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Reactions. Is it, are we actually, so this like struck me immediately. Like, are we moving to a permanent 24-hour workforce and spinning it as a blessing? Yeah, and I think I have heard similar views, you know, from companies like Amazon going going back there that, you know, the view of that kind of constant 24-7 customer service and people being pushed to, to, like, check emails all night. And if you don't respond within two hours, and I think, you know, um, that's mentioned in the article that um, was it Jack Ma or Mr. Liu would set his alarm to wake up every two hours yeah. so that they could offer customer service. I'll tell you what did work very well. Is, is the is the branding? So I mean, I told I told my wife about this, and she took the story into a, uh, a lab at a in a biology department on campus, and she couldn't remember anything that I'd said, but she remembered nine nine six, and then she could work <laughs> it back and figure out what the story was about. Ma effectively said that being able to work a nine nine six week, okay, that's working from nine in the morning to nine at night, six days a week, was quote a huge blessing. And Liu tried to pin the blame for China's slowing tech sector on, quote, slackers. You know, the people Jack Ma expects to put in a 996 week. People are complaining. So this has been um, a persistent phenomenon to work long time, um, uh, to work overtime uh, during uh, the past years. But uh, no one really talked about it. Recently, J- uh, Jack Ma just... Um, <laughs> 
he uh, sparked off all the national anger by saying this, uh, and people started to notice that um, they should pay attention to this, um, and because they are not alone. That's Jingmin He, one of our ESG rock stars in Shanghai. Jingmin is giving us the street-level view of what Andrew was worried about. Basically, regulators in China aren't pushing back against creeping work hours. And unions in China don't have the same legacy or potency as they might in other countries. So then, what happens if you're a worker in China? What's your next move? Do you just lie down and accept a nine-nine-six workweek as the new normal? The whole dynamic of this nine-nine-six um, uh, um, campaign is really interesting. But uh, we didn't see any union. Uh, play any roles in this whole campaign. It's actually a very um, grassroots or bottom-up um, campaign originated from the, a very niche tech um, uh, tech survey group of people that work for these high-tech companies, and they use the internet um, as a way to make this whole campaign go virus. I guess that's a a more modernized way to to put together people from different com- across all different companies in the same sector and make this whole campaign really influential. And that's Xipingua, yet another shining ESG star, this time from our Beijing office. And Xiping is laying out how a new modern workforce is organizing. Right, it's how skilled tech workers are pushing back against the creep of longer working hours. And not necessarily through unions, okay, but with something that has much more of a millennial feel, with words like internet and viral. Instead of using Karl Marx's words, "workers of the world unite," the future may be a bit of a remix, something like "workers of the world connect." Only time will tell how successful online labor campaigns are, but at least for now, they spurred Jack Ma to walk back his original view of a 72-hour work week being a blessing. And to issue some heavy clarifications about why it may be an okay thing, you know, if you're like into it. But as an investor, what's your bottom line? Well, if today or at some point in the future, you are invested in a company that has workers agitating to unionize, it's probably not great news. Not because unions are bad. In some cases, especially in a growing sector, unions can be a boon for workers and even boost their relationship with a company like Samsung. Which can then drive better productivity over time. But if employees are looking to a tool that's over 300 years old, it's probably a sign that your company is really out of sync with what its workers want. And for a company in trouble, like Hostess back in 2012, or a company looking to innovate, a union can make it really tricky to shake things up, which could leave the door open to more nimble competition. Ultimately, if you're investing for the future. You need to look way past unions, okay? You need to look at a much bigger picture and ask a much more fundamental question than "Is my company unionized?" or even "Should it be unionized?" You need to know whether a company you're investing in is ready for change, ready for the modern workplace to be totally revamped. And you should also know that workers are not just going to sit passively and let change happen to them. Whether it's 996 online chat forums in China. Or Amazon employees pushing for change through proxy cards rather than picket lines, expect some curveballs. And through all of the turbulence in labor relations, that is definitely coming. You'll want to know that your company has its finger on the pulse, its ear to the ground, its tweet on the Twitter. You need to know that your company is going to be just super chill, 
when you, as an investor, casually drop them an email asking, who are your workers? What do they want? So that's it. A big thanks to Bentley for doing all the heavy lift on this episode. May his dulcet tones ring to eternity. And this was the ESG Now podcast. I was not your host, Matt Muscardi, but your host, Bentley, tapped a cast of many to get this thing done. So thanks to SK and Andrew and Jingming and Sipping and Naomi for all contributing time and brain power. This show is produced by Bentley and I, our editorial team, Megan, Rick, and Mike. They're always a font of annoying wisdom for us. Uh, if you like what you heard, pretty please leave us a comment, rate us. The ratings tell our bosses that we should keep doing these things. If you didn't like it, then tell us that too, because honestly, at least you're listening. Tune in next time for more stories and weekly ESG takes on the news, and we'll see you then. thing called collective bargaining. You know what a union is? Well, I've heard of bargaining and I What's a bargain? A bargain is like this this like trick word like you're forcing somebody to do what they want. So, I'll give you an what example. What is said like A bargain would be if you do I'll make you a bargain. If you do if you do all your chores, I'll give you ice cream. Yum! Can I do that? No. That's an example of a bargain. Oh! Make a lot of sense. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.